0: We'll So if you wouldn't mind, would you you close your eyes and hear the word of the Lord? Revelation 2, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this... This section of Revelation that that we get to cover today and and think about together. And God, I I thank you that a document as old as this letter called Revelation is so incredibly relevant for our real lives here in Seattle in 2022. Father, I, I pray that you would help us to see that relevance today. To hear what it is, that, that the warning that your son has to this church and in some ways a warning for us. But also the promise that Jesus gives these Christians in this tough city called Pergamon And what that means for us today. How we can have hope and have endurance. And so Father, could you by your spirit make your word come alive for us to see the situation that these Christians were in. And how that relates to us today. So Father, in that, would you unite your power with my weak words, in order that we might hear the warning to death, and really sense and trust in the promise that Jesus has. Father, would you help us by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start off by asking a question. Uh, answer, answer this for yourself in your own head, and, and hold on to that answer for a while. The question is this. In 2022, what is the biggest threat to your faith that we as Christians are pressured to give in to? What do you think about that? I'm going to say it again. In 2022, and today, what is the biggest threat to your faith that we as Christians are pressured to give into? So let's assume together that those of us who are Christians here today desire. To stay faithful to Jesus and to get through life with our faith, not only intact, but also strong and vibrant. If you, if you want that, what would you identify as the biggest barrier to that? What, what are the most difficult cultural pressures that threaten your longevity or your integrity of the faith? Or Let me ask another one. For those of you who are parents and desire to have kids grow up into strong, vibrant, healthy disciples of Jesus, what is it that you think you have to prepare them for the most? Or maybe you want kids. What, what would you, how would you answer that? What do you think you have to prepare them for? What do you think that they will face as they go through life that will make them, that will make being a public, faithful, loving Christian so difficult? I want you to think about that for a moment. What threatens your faith the most today? What pressures threaten your faith? Let me give you a second to think about that. My hope for today is that if you got the answer right, because friends, there is a right answer, believe it or not, my hope is that you'll see that it's actually a pressure that is very old. <laughs> Very old, and something Christians have endured through, even as far back as this group of Christians in the city of Pergamum. And to have us understand and see that the pressures we feel today that really threaten our faith are so old, I want to do a little bit of work in order to paint the picture of what life was like in Pergamum just as a normal citizen. What was this great city like? Well, well, Pergamum was a world-class city at this time. And It carried out a whole lot of prowess in the Roman world. and In many ways, Pergamum was a city that would be somewhat of a hybrid between what we know as L.A., Vegas, and D.C. Quite a city, right? Quite a, quite a city. L.A., Vegas, and D.C. All these things kind of mixed together. First, it carried a lot of historical prowess because of its political ties to Rome. Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor to be authorized by Caesar in order to host what's called the imperial cult. And so they built one of the first temples to Caesar Augustus, and then later to another one named Trajan. Now, and if you remember back toward the beginning of this series, I talked about one of the main practices that was expected of Roman citizens was to demonstrate their allegiance to the reigning Caesar. Every citizen was expected to actually give their devotion to the Caesar. Now, they, they were allowed to worship whoever they wanted beside him. They were allowed to live however they wanted as long as they did their patriotic duties of expressing their allegiance to Caesar as a god or as their savior. and so. I talked about how they would have temples that were dedicated to Caesar, where they would would take some incense and go into the temple and throw it into the fire and say, Kaiser Perios, Caesar is Lord. Every Roman citizen, no matter what you believe, no matter what religion you had, that was an expectation. And here, in the city of Pergamum, was one of those special places where this practice of imperial worship was a huge part of life because it hosted one of the original temples to Caesar, But Pergamum didn't just have significance because of its political prowess or importance, but also because of the practices of daily life that catered to all things pagan. You could do any pagan practice in Pergamum. You, you know, today we, we have Los Angeles, right, which is all, some of the most famous people among us, and people go to LA in order to have celebrity tours so that we can see where Bill Murray lives, right? That's a vacation for us. How weird is that? <laughs> we worship. Well, Well, here in Pergamum, it was kind of like that. They had dozens and dozens of temples to pagan gods, and people from all over would, would come to the city in order to see where these pagan gods lived in the temples. And the temples of these pagan gods catered to just about everything in daily life. If you had a need, if you wanted to have something or you felt you, like you needed some assistance from the gods, you would go to the city of Pergamum. For instance, they, 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 you had the temple of Athena. Athena was the god of wisdom and war. Maybe, maybe you had the need for wisdom. Maybe life was feeling a little complex. You didn't really know what to do. You didn't know what the next step was, and you needed some assistance from on high. Well, Just hike on up to the temple of Athena and get the wisdom you need. You can have it. Or you could go to the temple of Dionysius. Dionysius was the pagan god of fruitfulness and wine. I expect many of us would pay homage to that temple. (laughs) It also meant he was the pagan god of ecstasy and pleasure. Again, many of us would probably find ourselves there. Maybe life was getting you down. And you just needed to pick me up. You just needed to feel better again. Well, hop on up to this temple and participate in the sacrifices or the sexual practices of the temple worship. And you could walk away feeling assured that life was gonna get a little bit more pleasurable. You had seen the God who could take care of what you needed. Or maybe you were sick. Maybe you were sick and you needed some healing in your life. Well, thankfully, you had the temple of Asclepius, which operated as kind of the functional hospital of the city. And you can go to this temple where temple priest will give you a mild sedative and lay you down in a temple with all the other sick people, and then while you're sedated, have snakes crawl over you in order to provide the healing that you need. <laughs> no thanks, right? <laughs> in fact, the symbol that we, that we use for medicine today, called the caduceus, has two snakes wrapped around a scepter, and that symbolism comes from this practice in the temple of Asclepius. They believe that snakes had healing powers. Or finally... Maybe in your life, you wanted, a, you, you wanted a direct line to the big guy himself, Zeus, the big one. Zeus was the king of Olympus, right? The god over all the other gods. Well, well, on the, on the highest hill in the city of Pergamum, right next to the temple actually dedicated to Caesar was the temple of Zeus. And if your life needed some heavy lifting from the king of the gods himself, just make a long hike up there and make a sacrifice to ensure that that your life was in good hands. It was in the hands of the king of the gods. What I'm trying to show is is this. If you had any need, if you had any desire, you could have it met there in the city of Pergamum. Look look no further, you found the city that can meet all of your needs and give you the good life that we're all searching for. Pergamum was the place to be. But as you can imagine, what the average Roman citizen saw as a golden city that can meet all of your needs, the Christians there in Pergamum had quite a different experience, right? Life as a Christian in Pergamum was difficult on all sides. Every, your whole life was under pressure if you were going to call yourself a disciple of Jesus. I mean, Jesus identifies this city, did you, did you see this in the text, as housing the throne of Satan. <laughs> he literally says that this city is where Satan dwells. That doesn't sound like a good city for, for Christians to feel comfortable in, right? Right. And I think Jesus is saying that this city has the throne of Satan most likely because of the two temples that were on the highest mountain. Again, the imperial temple of Caesar and the temple to Zeus. These two highest temples Jesus associates with the occupation of Satan. So yeah, Pergamum was not an easy (laughs) or a comfortable place to be a Christian. There was pressure. There was pressure on all sides. There was pressure from the imperial cult to worship Caesar as Lord. Again, Rome said that you could do whatever you wanted and worship whoever else you wanted as long as you included Caesar in your worship. And everyone accepted this except for the Christians. And because of this, of course, they were pressured and marginalized and, as we see, even killed. Or think about the pressure of just everyday life. Everyone around you has their whole life revolving around some temple practice that would supposedly meet some needs that they have in their life, but you never show up to these temples. Everything that everyone else is doing, the thing around which their life is revolving, you do not participate. In other words, you didn't participate in what everyone else called a normal life. You're strange. Some saw you as reclusive for not participating, but also many of your neighbors would have seen you as dangerous. Not only did you not give allegiance to Caesar, but also you weren't being a normal person who revolves your life around some pagan god. You were a disruption to what everyone else called normal, and so because of that, you were just a threat. You were a threat to daily life in Pergamum, and yet with pressure at every side, this little group of Christians in Pergamum was making it through. They were making it through despite the pressure to worship Caesar, despite the pressure that, that, that wanted them to include themselves in all the pagan practices of daily life. They were enduring. And that's what Jesus commends them for, right? That despite living where Satan dwells, they did not give in they did not give in even when antipas who was even when he was publicly martyred as a warning to every other christian they all remained steadfast they were witnesses to the public martyrdom of their leader in the city and still they remained steadfast this is a faithful group of christians Can you imagine watching the leader that you follow in your discipleship being publicly killed, not just in order to kill him, but also to warn you, if you keep going down this path that Antipas did, you're gonna meet the same fate. These Christians remained steadfast despite all of that. But as Jesus's message goes on, we see that not everyone in the church is advocating for endurance, right? Jesus commends the majority of the church for their endurance in order to make it through and be steadfast in the midst of pressure and persecution, but he also identifies that there are some among you who have diluted the faith. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, now Jesus references a a character from the Old Testament named Balaam. And Balaam was a a pagan priest or prophet who was hired by a pagan nation in order to uh, first curse Israel so that they couldn't take over the land of the Canaanites. But if you read the story, Yahweh gets in the way, and he's not able to curse Israelites. And so instead of cursing the Israelites, he becomes a character who slowly seduces the Israelites away from their exclusive allegiance to Yahweh and actually gets Israel to compromise on their faith by mixing themselves in with the pagan nations and their practices. And so Jesus, by referencing Balaam, is warning the church in Pergamum that there are false teachers in their midst who are teaching them that an exclusive faith to Jesus is just unrealistic. It's just unrealistic. Don't be so exclusive. Instead of being so exclusive in your allegiance, just mix in some of the pagan practices of the city so that you can still be a Christian. Balaam didn't want the Israelites to not be Israelites, he just wanted them to mix in with all the other nations and into their practices. You can still be a Christian, but also, guess what? You can be accepted by your neighbors and not be so threatened by the authorities. And so Jesus points out that these teachers, they they encourage eating meat sacrificed to idols and they promote sexual immorality. What in the world does all that mean? Well, Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians takes on this problem of eating meat sacrificed to idols and actually says that it's okay as long as you purchase the meat in the marketplace rather than getting it straight from the temple practice. But what Jesus is showing here is that these false teachers are actually promoting full participation in the practice, shown also by the recommendation of sexual morality. These are Christian teachers teaching these things. This church has a problem from the inside. Jesus is not, I mean, he is, but he's not as concerned about what is going on in the regular life of Pergamum of just a normal Roman citizen. He's concerned that this teaching is coming from Christians. And he wants them to notice it. He wants, them, he wants to warn them of it. And so what they're teaching What they're leading Christians away with is this, and this is the crux of Jesus' warning and the center of really what I want us to hear for the rest of this sermon. These teachers are teaching the acceptance of what you might call Christianity light for the sake of participation in the wider society and inclusion from their neighbors. These teachers are not saying leave the faith. They're not saying just totally give up. They're just saying, hey, there's a form of Christianity that's a little bit lighter. That's a little bit not so exclusive. And if you embrace that, you can still call yourself a Christian. You can still be a disciple of Jesus. But also, guess what? Your neighbors might like you. You you can participate in this. You you might not be seen as such a threat. You might not die by the hands of the Roman authorities. That sounds appealing, (laughs) That, that would sound like, okay, if there's a version of this whole thing where I can keep my Christian faith, I can keep calling myself a Christian and then not be so afraid, not be so threatened, tell, tell me more about that. And Jesus steps in and says, no, as the one with the, the sharp two-edged sword, which references back to Revelation 1 about the sharp two-edged sword coming out of, his, out of his mouth, the one who knows the truth Jesus says, no, there is not a way, there is not a version of Christianity that you can call light so that you can just go on to do whatever you want and be accepted by your neighbors and not be so threatened by the authorities. Jesus steps in and warns them and says, no. Specifically, these false teachers, they are advocating for Christianity light So that these Christians can still give some of their allegiance to the state and also participate in the normal first century life of pagan Pergamum. That's what these teachers are trying to get these Christians to do. Just throw away some of that exclusivity so that you can give some of the devotion that should have been given to Jesus to the state. Devotion to the state and inclusion in society and man. I sure am glad that this isn't a problem in modern-day churches, right? (laughs) I'm so glad that for the last 2,000 years, Christians have matured, have learned to have wisdom when they think about their faith related to the state. No, I'm, I'm being facetious. Of course, this is a problem today. This false teaching of Christianity light for the sake of devotion to the state is still rampant within the church today. And again, it's coming from within the church. It's coming from those who call themselves Christians. Politics today is just as much as a religious practice as it would have been for some person in Pergamum to go up that mountain, grab the incense, go in and say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. It's just as much of a religious practice. It's still around today. We've just taken away the incense and we've changed the name. Our politics today receive a religious level of devotion. And I mean a religious level of devotion among Christians. It's certainly outside the church, without a doubt. Without a doubt. But it's also in Christians who are religiously devoted to the state. And it makes sense that our society as a whole, those outside of the church, would would embrace politics as what you might call their supreme gospel. When you take away God from accepted reality in life, it's up to you in order to force change and progress. And the most obvious way to do that is through politics. That makes sense for anyone who has rejected a theistic framework of life. But again... Those aren't the people who should be convicted by what Jesus' message and warning is here. Those who should hear this warning are those who have embraced a form of Christianity light in order to maintain their allegiance to their preferred political party or political agenda. Their Christianity has become a tool in the service of politics I want to say that again, because it should shock you that Christianity has become a tool in the service of their politics. Now, there are obvious examples of this, right? When you see people smashing windows of the Capitol in order to break in, all the while holding Jesus flags and signs, it's really easy to think, yep, that's not right, (laughs) Something's gone wrong there. That, that doesn't seem like the right type of Christianity. That seems like Christian nationalism. Anytime you hear the name of a president associated with being a messenger or savior from God in order to save America, you better have all kinds of warning signs go up in your mind that the Christianity that they are proclaiming is Christianity light, done in service of the state. But friends, the religious levels of devotion given to MAGA are not the only examples of this false teaching. The religious right is deluded by this false teaching the save God's favorite country type of thinking. But the religious left, and there is a religious left, Christians on the left, they have embraced this same false teaching through their utopian dreams that they believe will come through the practice of politics. This gospel of a utopian society that can come about through our politics. And friend, that, that utopian version of this false teaching is probably closer to what these false teachers were actually advocating for. There, there was back then what's called the Pax Romana, meaning, meaning the peace of Rome. There was the idea that Rome was this political power that could finally save the world from danger and bring in a lasting peace that would extend out to the world. To Caesar, this time was a devotion to the utopian peace Rome thought that it could bring to the world. And Christians on the left have, in many ways, adopted Christianity light in order to further the utopian vision of the left. Pieces of Christianity are dropped, others are more emphasized in order to give life and energy to the utopian. Vision. Can we take a breath together? This is Jesus' warning to the church that no matter what side of the aisle you fall on, doesn't matter if you associate your political agenda or your allegiance to the state, whether that state is the save God's favorite country type of thinking, or that state is, we can create our own utopian world. If you bring in your Christian faith and say, this is what the gospel requires, that if you don't believe this, if you don't do this, then you can't be a Christian. Friends, that is Christianity light. That is Christianity light that has diluted Christianity. All of it, on the right and on the left, are versions of Christianity light which in one way is just another way of saying no Christianity at all. As soon as you tie an adjective to either side of the word Christianity, it usually ceases to be Christianity, right? We understand that. And so Jesus gives this church a warning. Do not embrace the idea that you can let go of certain pieces of your faith so that you can express your devotion to the state. But that's not the only thing that these false teachers are saying. They're also saying that you can participate in life that that back then revolved around pagan deities. And so the false teaching wasn't just about giving devotion to Caesar. It was also about just the daily life of, you, you, you can go and participate. You're sick? Okay, go to Dionysius. Do it. You need some wisdom? Okay, go to Athena. Maybe ask Jesus first. But then go to Athena, right? You can participate in the normal parts of life, just just don't worry about it. And participation in that life back then revolved around pagan deities, but for today, participation in life often revolves around secular identities. I think this is the crux of where this can hit us today. None of us are going and searching. None of us are climbing Rainier so that we can, I mean, few of us are actually climbing Rainier, but none of us would do it in order so that we can go to the temple of Zeus, right? But there are many other ways that this can still hit us. Our lives today doesn't revolve around pagan deities, but it does revolve around secular identities. Tim Keller makes this, this, this connection here, when he says this, that, that the Roman Empire would say, you Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor all deities. And then the modern West says, you Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social, social order because you won't honor all identities. He's making the, the connection there that whereas in pagan society, what mattered the most was the pagan deity, what matters the most today is your personal sense of identity. Inclusion in today's life means embracing some form of an identity. And if we're honest, that seems relatively harmless in comparison to going and participating in a pagan practice, right? Seems relatively harmless, a little bit more eh, not so bad than us going to the the temple of Dionysius and practicing in sexual immorality. I'll just keep it tame, (laughs) That that doesn't sound so bad compared to that, right? That we can just form our own sense of identity. But friends, I, I I want to warn you there because anytime that we take up the task of molding our own sense of self, we are by necessity subjugating the identity that Jesus has given us already. Anytime that we ourselves into the identity creation machine that is our culture. Anytime we give that weight in our life, often what happens is that whatever we come up with on the other side of that machine usually ends up subjugating the identity that Jesus has already given us, which is another way of saying infidelity to Jesus, Anytime that we make something about ourselves or about our culture the most important thing about us, the thing around which we evolve, we're pushing Jesus out of the equation. And there are many today who would tell you that there is a version of Christianity light that you can embrace, that you can take up, so that you can participate in that identity creation machine. Now, I know that many of us do different things and we have a certain sense of ourselves. We all have some, we all have different identities that kind of cover the spectrum of who we are. It's not like there's just, oh, I'm just this and nothing else. But the question is, what, what are you most? <laughs> what are you most? Are you most a disciple of Jesus? Or are you most whatever, fill in the blank? And it could be anything. I'm not just, I'm not just talking about sexual identity. I'm talking about, Parenthood, I'm talking about marital status. I'm talking about occupation and career, how you think about yourself. The thing that you would write down and say, this is the most important thing of who I am, or this is what I would want to be most true of myself. That's your core identity, and that's what your life is going to revolve around, which is why the warning here is that if there's anything there that would fill that blank other than Jesus... You're headed towards infidelity to Jesus, if not already practicing it. These, to go back to the question I asked you at the beginning, I think are the biggest threats to your faith making it in the long run. Now, there are many threats that we bring to ourselves, right? (laughs) I'm talking about cultural pressures here. There are many things within ourselves that threaten our own faith, right? (laughs) Right? But I think these are the cultural pressures. These are the outside pressures that if you don't see them, if you don't see the warning of them, then I think eventually you're gonna embrace this version of Christianity. You'll be devoted to the state in whatever side of the aisle you want to with your own sense of self and actually subjugate what Jesus has already said about you. These are the big threats. But thankfully... Jesus doesn't just give a warning, right? He says, repent. And he gives a warning that if you don't repent, then for this church, he's gonna come and set the record straight against these false teachers. But he also gives a promise that to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who conquers receives it. Now, that sounds like a wonderful promise, but also a mysterious one, right? It's like, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> What's my name going to be, you know? Anyone else think of that? What does Jesus know about me that I don't? I hope it's still Josh. It's a, it's a good name, so <laughs> Jesus knows better, though. What, what this is, is that historically, at, at this time, anytime there was a big feast, which is why he brings in the idea of manna, anytime there was a big feast or a party, in order to get into that party, some of the more elite parties, they would often give out a, a, a white stone, which is basically your admission ticket. And so what Jesus is getting in here, what he's hinting at here is that there is a feast. There is something that's coming that I'm going to personally include you on. And it's it's not just going to be a white stone, but it's going to be a white stone with a special name on it. Everything that I know about you, I'm going to include on that stone, and you're going to be admitted. You're going to be included into this great party. Whereas these Christians thought that they would be doomed to exclusion, (laughs) to being excluded from some of the funner aspects of life in Pergamum, Jesus says no, there is a feast coming and it's, and it's hidden manna as if to show that it's, it's the really good stuff that you don't even know about yet. It's gonna be great. There I will include you to the one who conquers, to the one who can for now endure some exclusion for the sake of their integrity in the faith, them I will include. Them I will welcome in with a personalized inclusion. That's the call for us today, simple as it is. Can we bear temporary exclusion? And it's not even to this level, friends. We're not in Pergamum, we're in Seattle. Can we bear some exclusion so that we might hear that great inclusion and that great welcome of Jesus here at this great feast. Can we bear that, friends? Can we conquer? Well, one of the ways that we can conquer is for us to see, and this is not just my gospel ending that I gotta do at the end, this is where it matters for you as a Christian, is to see that everything that our culture would tell us, you can have this, you can have this inclusion, you can have this identity, but you got to do this first. All of that is antithetical and opposite of what Jesus has already done. Everything that you could win over from our culture by embracing Christianity light, all of the ends of that, of inclusion and acceptance and welcome and identity, Jesus has already given that at no cost to yourself. That's where the gospel comes into this that encourages and feeds and energizes our endurance is to see that, man, everything that everything that makes the possibility of Christianity life so welcoming or maybe so appealing, all of that is just a, a, a poor substitute for what Jesus has already given us: an identity. <laughs> that you don't have to work for, that, you don't, that that won't go up and down with your parenting or with your marital status or with your sexuality or with your career or occupation. It's a solid, static, full identity. If we recognize that, then all this other, all this other appeal that we think is there on the other side of giving in to pressure just loses its appeal. <laughs> we can see that we already have the welcome We already have the inclusion. We already have the identity that we could ever want. And so in all of this, we don't just hear the warning, but we hear the good news. In many ways, the the good news to you captives today who are thinking and working through your own sense of identity on your own. Do you know what a burden that is? To form your own sense of identity? That's why, there are many reasons, I'm going off here, but there are many reasons why our, our culture... Suffers from depression and anxiety and mental illness. And I really believe that one of the reasons why is exactly this. It's because we have taken up the unbearable burden of defining ourselves. That is such a burden. And we know that, even just a, a few weeks ago, you know, the great philosopher and academic Taylor Swift did a commencement speech where she was given a uh, honorary doctorate, which is the most frustrating thing in the world for any of us who have been through school, <laughs> right? I love T. Swift, but she does not deserve a doctorate, okay? Okay. <laughs> In that commencement speech, she actually hit on this. that She talked about how the, the future that you have as students is so wide, and you get to go and form your own sense of self. And she said it. She said it first. She said, now that should terrify you, but also that should thrill you. She got the first part right. It is not thrilling to take on the, ca- the, the, the task of your own self-creation. Because then, even when you do find it, even when you do come up with a livable identity, you've got to... You gotta keep it going. You gotta hold it all together. Do your shoulders feel heavy yet? And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ says that everything that you would want to create for yourself, things on the other side of that that you are recognizing that would be maybe more peaceful, maybe more joyful. Friends, all of that is already offered to us in the identity that we have in Jesus we we sing about it set free child of god we can rest in that and then from there endure through exclusion knowing that one day there's coming a day where inclusion that we have in Christ will overcome every painful emotion every sense of rejection that we've ever felt until then we look at Christ look to Jesus and who he's made us to be we give our devotion to the true king and we receive our identity from him rather than the the burden and task of taking it on ourselves let's pray Father, again, I thank you that what this little church in Pergamum was going through 2,000 years ago is so incredibly similar to, to what some of us feel today. Theirs was worse, without a doubt. But that doesn't take away from the experience of, of pressure as a Christian in Seattle. It's real, and you don't, you don't dismiss or deride or despise us for saying, this hurts to be excluded. This is scary. You don't deride us for that, but you do call us to hear how you are, are present in that trial, what you are saying in that pressure, and what you're calling us to. And so, Father, as as we work through life as a Christian in Seattle, God, would you warn us and keep us from Christianity light? Would you keep us from hearing that as appealing? What a pitiful substitute that is to the real life of discipleship that we've been called into in Jesus. And God, would you, by your grace, by the work of your spirit, construct, reestablish in us, God, our sense of identity in Jesus, child of God, free, and our future is bright. It's headed toward this great feast where we will be included. Let that be the most important thing about us, God. So now as, as we reflect and as we, take communion, and as we sing, God, would you help us to, to feel what we've heard today and to answer the call of faithfulness by the power of your Spirit as we are energized by the gospel of your Son. It's in his name that I ask these things. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church.